I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about a recent decision by the Biden administration to put a pause on the licensing of new liquefied natural gas export terminals, or LNG, we have with us two of our very best energy people at CSIS, Ben Cahill, who's a senior fellow in the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS, and of course, the great Joseph Mikat, who is the director of the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. Guys, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have both of you here. It's Friday, and on January 26th, President Biden announced this this morning. Why is this such a big deal, and why is there so much buzz around this in Washington and in states like uh, Louisiana that are affected by it? Thanks, Andrew. It's good to be with you. Yeah, it is a big decision. So as you said, the Biden administration has put a pause on approvals of new LNG export projects by the U.S. Department of Energy. If you're building a big LNG export project in the United States, you need two key permits. One is from the Department of Energy, another is from FERC, or the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. That's to build the facility itself. Without those two key permits, you really can't build an, a big LNG export plant. And so this is a decision that doesn't affect current LNG export projects in the U.S., and it also doesn't affect the ones that are currently under construction. And there are five big projects underway in the United States. What this really does is hit the pause button on anything beyond that. So the next perspective wave of big LNG export projects. And I think the thing that's worth noting here is, you know, there are several projects that have lined up supply contracts and have talked with banks about getting financing. They're relatively close to getting all the pieces in place to take what's called final investment decision, which is basically the go ahead for the investment. And they're waiting on these approvals from the DOE and FERC. And so those projects will now be in limbo for probably at least a year, um, maybe longer than that. It remains to be seen. And the significance of this debate, I think, is it's really about the longer term pathway for the U.S. as an LNG exporter. You know, this whole debate kind of came up pretty recently. It was really about a push by environmental campaigners against this big LNG export boom in the United States. And I think the, the scale of this industry has kind of taken a lot of people by surprise. We're just waking up to it. Yeah. You know, the United States is the largest LNG exporter in the world. It surpassed Qatar and Australia last year, and most people are not aware of this. And Ben, that's that's such an interesting point. I want to also point out that really the United States has only been exporting LNG since about 2016. Is that right? Correct. And this is a byproduct of the shale revolution. You know, basically, once the country realized that we're going to have such natural gas abundance, that it would not only satisfy domestic demand, but would have a lot of surplus capacity, then the shift happened. Previously, the country was building LNG import facilities, big terminals to, you know, regasify gas that we got from abroad. That all flipped with the shale revolution. Suddenly, we had so much gas that it enabled this big build out of export facilities. So it started just in 2016, as you noted. This is primarily on the Gulf Coast in Texas and Louisiana. Again, the U.S. is already the largest LNG exporter in the world, and LNG export capacity is set to increase by something like 85% between now and 2028. So there's a big expansion underway. Okay, so despite this pause in new construction of new terminals, we're still the world's largest exporter. And this is seen by a lot of people as a good thing because it's what? Replacing coal. But I want you guys to explain the ins and outs of this because it's very complex. Joseph, I want to go to you. You know, I guess a lot of us thought that this was in, this was a lot cleaner than coal. So some, if you're not following this so closely, this might have come as a surprise. 
Yeah, happy to put some bounds around the debate. Let me actually offer a brief correction, though. As Ben says, we have this large fleet, now currently the largest exporter. There is an expansion of that fleet that has been planned, financed, already permitted. And we expect to see, I mean, the construction timeline, say 28. So, you know, in reality, they will probably come on 2030. This decision is about the longer term. What does the U.S. want to do after that? And this is actually really important for the question that you pose. Because for the last 10 years, every market signal has told us, hey, this is great, right? Buyers want access to what is a bountiful resource in the United States. The review after review has said, this does not increase global greenhouse gas emissions for the cases where we think exports are going, displacing coal in Asia or in Europe. And then after the uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia and the fall off of gas trade between Russia and Europe, US LNG played this like remarkably important role, which we should talk a little bit more in depth about in, in keeping the lights on in Europe and keeping solidarity behind the Ukrainian uh, military effort. The challenge though, for a lot of the critique or a, a lot of the critics of the industry is that things have gone so well, they're going now too well. And they see this potential expansion and then a further build out as threatening the long-term climate goals. And this actually should be understandable, right? If you want to be responsive to climate change, you need to build a world that can have net zero greenhouse gas emissions by mid-century. And so they see a huge continuing build out of LNG export terminals in the 2030s. This is long-lived infrastructure. And immediately they see a conflict with their long-term goals. That's an important consideration to, to keep in mind. And so what, what ends up happening in the public debate on Twitter and op-ed pages is you've kind of got people comparing different counterfactuals. On the one hand, you have people who have looked at the last 10 years and see that trend continuing. US LNG, displacing coal abroad, reducing global greenhouse gas emissions and benefiting the US economically. On the other hand, you have people who are saying, Every one of these is going to be preventing us from building out renewables around the world and is kind of contributing to this long-term climate problem. The reality is in the messy middle. And what it's now to policymakers and all of us to help them figure out is how does the U.S. want to reconsider its role in the global energy system with all these different factors in mind? So now we have a situation where the environmental community is cheering on this decision by the Biden administration, but some in the national security community might not be as excited about it. Can you explain what the difference in views are on this? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think a lot of it is about the role that the U.S. wants to play in global energy security, right? We've written a lot about, Ben recently wrote a really great piece on the sort of characteristics of the U.S. LNG industry. Our industry plays a unique role compared to other LNG exporters. It's very market oriented. It's destination flexible. There's there's a lot of ability for prices to drive who can buy LNG out of the U.S. That's not the same for all other exporters. And we we just saw in Europe that this was a remarkably important tool geopolitically in preventing Putin and Russia from having the from sort of using the energy hammer against Europe and using it as a as a, another tool in their campaign against Ukraine. The tough kind of consideration that we need to figure out is how much of that matters going forward. Right. And so, Ben, can you give us a sense of why did this happen? What are the primary concerns behind the health of communities 
And what are what are some of the primary concerns associated with LNG exports? I know, for instance, that while it is a, a clean alternative to coal, it takes an enormous amount of energy to actually liquefy natural gas. So can you explain to us what the ins and outs of this are? Yeah. In November of last year, more than 60 members of Congress wrote a letter to the DOE saying, you need to change the way you consider proposed LNG projects. And they mentioned three things in particular. One is the emissions and the climate impact. Second is the impact on domestic gas prices and the domestic economy of exporting all this gas. And the third issue was local communities or the environmental justice impact of you know, building all these plants along the Gulf Coast. It's worth noting that, as Joseph mentioned earlier, the DOE has looked at these things before. Between 2012 and 2018, there were a series of studies that looked at, you know, especially the domestic market impact and, um, and some of the climate and, and emissions concerns. But you know, things have moved on since then. We are in the midst of this enormous expansion. We know it's coming. So the reality of the scale of the industry has changed, right? I think it's fair to take a look at the, the cumulative climate impacts of all those things. To me, though, it's clear that the climate issue is kind of outweighing the domestic price issue and maybe even the local community issue. I know the three are often mentioned in tandem, but this mostly seems like a climate story to me. And it's a complicated issue, right? I think one thing that's really important to keep in mind is we have this enormous LNG production today. We have a lot that we know is coming. So a critical question is how do we drive down emissions associated with all that production? You can kill a future supply project that's not going to come online from 2035 on or something, but there's much more opportunity to move the needle on emissions by driving down emissions from current gas production and exports. And here, I think the Biden administration has actually done some really important work in the last couple of years because a critical issue is methane. Everyone knows methane leaks across the whole supply chain, right? You have a methane issue on the production of natural gas, the transportation of it, a little bit with the liquefaction and the shipping. And it's really important to get our arms around this problem to understand where the methane emissions are happening and to try to reduce them. And the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has passed some really important rules in this way. The Department of Energy is working with a bunch of other countries on ways to drive down emissions from traded gas. To me, that's the important stuff. That's where the real impact happens on the emissions front. Ben has done some really great work on this question of how do you control methane emissions which means you know, for every cargo that the US can send, how do you make sure that that is the least climate harmful, so to say, as you want to? I also think that the, you know, there's a real challenge to sort of saying, well, if the US is gonna restrict or change its export policy, that somehow meaningfully affects global emissions, right? Like there are other LNG exporters. Oftentimes we're talking about the energy decisions that are being made in countries like China, Japan, uh, developing countries in Southeast Asia, in Europe. And so, you know, the idea that you're just going to be able to halt exports from the United States and that somehow makes LNG less important for the global economy is something that we really question. And that makes the kind of stuff that Ben's talking about doubly important, right? How do we develop strategies so that this industry, not just from the United States, but from around the world is kind of being used in the service of reducing emissions over time? So, no, I know you guys are helping Congress and the administration think about these issues. How, how should we be thinking about these issues to do exactly what you just said? I fully support the idea that we need to take a hard look at the emissions impact of U.S. LNG, and we need serious efforts to drive down emissions right across the value chain. And as I mentioned, I think we have already passed some really important reg regulations in the United States. It's going to take a while for that to come to fruition and have an impact, but it will happen. 
It's also really important to note here that we're moving towards a world where LNG buyers are demanding better data on the emissions associated with all the gas they buy, whether that's an LNG cargo or a certain amount of pipeline gas. In the EU, they passed important legislation on this. It's being finalized right now. There's more interest in Japan and Korea. We're not quite there yet, but this stuff is moving really quickly. So within the space of a couple of years, there will be a lot more demand for this kind of data. And I think the critical thing is that it could be a real competitive advantage for US LNG suppliers. We have so much investor and shareholder pressure on this issue. We have these important rules and regs, and we have changing market demand for this stuff. And so some of the larger LNG exporters really want to get this right. They've actually invested heavily in emissions detection, quantification, to try to understand the scale of the problem and figure out how to drive down those emissions. And you know, there are a lot of reasons to think the US will do a better job at this than a lot of other countries in, say, North Africa or West Africa. You know, it may not be as sexy as killing a future supply project, but that's that's real impact. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the other thing I wanted to ask you. Joseph, you just alluded to the fact that the administration's done some important work in the last couple of years. A lot of times when we think about climate policy, you know, most of us who aren't following it exactly day to day think this is such a huge, enormous problem that like whatever we do doesn't really put too much of a dent in it. And, you know, maybe some will view this decision today as, you know, what does this really do? We're still the largest exporter. We're going to be the largest exporter of this. You know, as you guys have both pointed out, you know, it, everyone knows it leaks. You know, we can only, it can only be so safe in terms of emissions. Well, so what are we doing over the last couple of years that actually really does make a difference? If we look at what we're doing over the last couple of years, that actually strongly informs what we need to do going forward as well. So both through bipartisan action in terms of the Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act, otherwise known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, which made a, you know, put a lot of US government effort and money behind innovative technologies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions across different sectors, transportation, heavy industry, power, give the US a toehold in like the minerals, copper, lithium, and other things that we're going to need for green technology. Then you've got the IRA, which was a more partisan move, but is is like kind of turbocharging all of that investment. All that is keyed toward the U.S. being a technology leader, driving down its own emissions, and a lot of the solutions that get built out of those investments are going to be, we think, portable around the world. But they're not going to be portable in the absence of a sort of what I would call a, like a more consensus strategy toward how the U.S. wants to deal with international emissions, right? And this is important because we are a large energy exporter now. We can't really avoid that. If you're a climate campaigner, you can't wish it away. We need to find ways that we're going to match that kind of engagement with the rest of the world on the clean energy side. Because right now, if we're going into, you know, if the Biden administration or John Kerry goes to India and says, hey, we want you to shut down fossil fuel plants and we want you to build renewables, the U.S. doesn't have all that many tools to help out, right? That technology is going to come from China. Our ability to provide energy security, to provide economic engagement is limited. We need to build that up by the kind of investments we've seen over the last couple of years. We need to kind of reinvigorate our ability to engage on economic issues around the world in ways that the U.S. has been somewhat reluctant to do over the past half a century. And we should see this export industry, in my opinion, as a tool to help us work on that problem. And so I'd love to see us move to a place where instead of saying, listen, we're not going to do any more of this activity. 
we're going to try and find ways where it becomes part of a suite of options, a package of options, if you will, that helps drive down global emissions, helps meet countries where they are, and helps give the U.S. not just an economic toehold, but a, a geopolitical toehold around the world. Guys, I got to ask you about the Louisiana Project. It was developed by Venture Global. It's known as CP2, I believe. Now, back in the day, uh, when I after I graduated from Tulane University, my first job in Washington was I worked for Senator Jay Bennett Johnston of Louisiana, who at the time was the chairman of the Senate Energy Committee. I can imagine that the Louisiana delegation is not too happy about this $10 billion project in their state being paused. Tell me about why it was this particular project that was paused and referenced in the administration's notes on this. And what what are the prospects for it going forward? Environmental campaigners have become pretty good at turning certain projects into symbols in the same way that we saw with the Keystone XL pipeline or the Dakota Access Pipeline or the Willow Oil Project in Alaska. You raise this individual project to such a high profile that becomes a symbol of broader issues, right? And CP2, because it's very large, was and it's kind of next in line for this approval process, was the first one up. So it's not about the merits of the project on itself so much as it is you know, targeting the future wave of LNG export expansions. I mean, Texas and Louisiana are the heartland of the US LNG industry. There's very strong political support at the local level and the state level for the industry. You know, it will come as a surprise to no one that this decision is going to disappoint a lot of those people because it's an industry that provides a lot of jobs and revenue for those, for those communities. You know, I think maybe the hope is that the DOE will go off and conduct its review. It will do a study and maybe will reassess the way that it considers these projects and issues licenses in the future, but that it won't be gone forever. Uh, we'll just see a delay. You know, on a macro scale for the US LNG industry, a one-year pause is not the end of the world. But of course, if you're a project promoter and you were close to final investment decision and you got a bunch of contracts in place and buyers waiting, uh, it's a disaster for your individual project. So that's kind of where we are. A certain number of projects are going to be in limbo for a year while we wait and see how this shakes out. You know, this is such an interesting issue and it underscores what you, my colleagues, do on a daily basis. You are operating at the nexus of climate policy, energy policy, and national security. Tell me why this is such a, a bigger overarching issue to you guys. Yeah, as you said, Andrew, it's a really fascinating issue because it's multidimensional. And rightly so, there's been a lot of focus on the climate concerns about US LNG, but there's a real need to have a fact-based discussion about the benefits that the industry brings in terms of geopolitics, in terms of the flexibility and the volumes that it's brought to the US LNG market. It's too complex to get into now, but suffice to say, in the last decade, US LNG has really revolutionized the way that LNG is sold and priced and flows around the world. It's really been a big deal. And of course, geopolitically, we all know what happened after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, US LNG was essential. And so uh, there is a time to continue producing this kind of granular fact-based analysis to help inform the policy debate. And we really want to do that at CSIS. I'd like to jump in and also note that it's quickly an arcane issue. Right. You're talking about LNG. Most people don't even really know what liquid financial gas is. They don't conceive of it. It's a relatively new industry. When you're talking about climate impacts, you're talking about methane leakage and sort of what kind of power plant is being displaced when you're shipping LNG around the world. It quickly gets confusing. And what we see on sort of either side of the debate 
is people holding strong positions based on on kind of singular data points. And I think it's our mission, our program and our institution really tries to cast light on these debates and help policymakers and the broader community understand them with a little bit more fullness and be able to then make judgments about how do we find trade-offs, how do we navigate the trade-offs, and how do we find places where we can align different kinds of objectives. That's really our job as at CSIS. Guys, I want to thank you for helping put this in perspective, You know, especially on such a busy day for you all. Um, I know that you're called on to explain this over and over today on a day like today when there's a decision. So thanks so much for your time and really fascinating discussion. No one we'd rather explain to than you and your audience, Andrew. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 